When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the extra special, amazing Weapons of Math Destruction edition of Slate Money. We three brave souls have now managed, between the three of us, to publish one book. Wow. And that... But it's a really good book. It's a really good book. (laughs) It's a really, really good book. book, I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. I have never published a book. I am joined by Jordan Weissman of Slate, who has never published a book. Probably never going to. And we are also joined by Kathy O'Neill, who has published a book. It is called, what is the title? It's called Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. And we are going to devote this entire episode to this book because we love Kathy and we are basically, we're taking book plugs to a whole new level yeah, here. Yeah. I was going to say, we, the, we bring on all sorts of other people to plug their books. It would the, be a little um, bit impolite if we told Kathy she couldn't. At the, end of <laughs> this, at the end of this episode, you should go out and order multiple copies and send them to everyone who you think should read it. And at the end of this episode, you will understand why so many people should and read it. And if I may plug, I, I just want to say, since we're a podcast, that I read this book on the audio version of this book. So feel free to buy that as if well. If you like the Kathy voice. Some people the love it. Mellifluous Kathy I, O'Neill. I like, the, I like the Kathy voice. I if you too. like the Kathy voice, you can audio listen instead of read. Some people, yeah, it's, it's much easier when you're driving. Yeah, people, yeah. It's true. So we are going to break this episode into the standard three parts. Um, the main story of the book, as I'm sure all regular readers or listeners of Slate Money will know, is that there are these algorithms which are quietly destroying society. And so what we are going to do is we're going to spend the first part talking about some really bad algorithms, one in particular. We're going to spend the second part talking about algorithms which are actually quite well designed and efficient but they have very nasty side effects, you might say. And then we're going to finish off in the third part by talking about what we can do about this, because this is not an entirely pessimistic book. It's just a mostly pessimistic book. So we're going to, I'm going to start. It's a manifesto. Can I actually say yeah. one thing really quickly at the start is why I really, having podcasted with you for like two years, more than two years now, and still really loved reading this. Was please do, Jordan. No, I really do. I, I really <laughs> Can we, we need some more Kathy so, flattery. No, I really do. So, <laughs> I, I typically subscribe to the Gore Vidal thing when one of my friends does like succeeds, a little part of me dies. But like, really, this is just like so. Like, I'm I don't, I'm not so like, you're like, I'm gonna hate on Kathy. But instead, I was reading this, I was just like, this is so like it's so good because it just so clearly articulates so many of the themes you've been kind of laying out for a long time and it formalizes them. 
you give a great model for when an algorithm is going to malfunction and become this like weapon of math destruction. Uh, it is a tripartite test. Yeah, no and like less. that's what's great about it. It gives you a way to think about looking at an algorithm and when is it going to turn into this this terrible thing. Yeah. The weapon of math destruction. Yeah. You know, and thank you for saying that because that was one of my main goals is to perform a triage on this conversation because yeah. so often you just hear people sort of vaguely talking about, you know, ills that could befall humanity. And I'm like, like, what, what are we worried about? Like, can we define it? Can yeah. we, like, triage? Can we carve it out? And, and I remember when we first started talking about the stuff on the show, Felix and I were sitting here going, like, what, what's, why is this stuff a big deal? And you kind of slowly started converting us. And now I feel like I know not only why is this a big deal, but, like, how to think about it and how to really worry about being a big deal. And I'm going to stop uh, now just heaping praise on you and instead <laughs> let you talk about what's going on in this book. But so, I just wanted to really put that out there. Thank you. Um, right. So let's let's start. Actually, why don't we start? Because this is a nerd um, podcast yeah. for nerds. Yeah. I feel like it's okay to start with two little sort of nerdy stipulations. So we can start off with two definitions. Number one is what is an algorithm? And number two is when is an algorithm a weapon of math destruction? Great. Okay, so what's an algorithm? And obviously I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but I do want to say that the main two things you need when you are building an algorithm is data, and that's tr it's called training data. You're training um, uh, an algorithm to sort of look for patterns. And then the second thing is a definition of success, uh, also known as an objective function. Something, some target you're saying, hey, pay attention when this happens. So it could be like pay attention when someone goes to jail, pay attention when somebody is successful at a job or something like that. And then the, what the algorithm does is it looks for patterns in the history that you're giving it in the data for when this definition of success actually occurs. So if, you know, those of you out there who are investors who like to buy value stocks and you look at price to earnings ratios and you buy stocks which are trading on low PEs because you think that means they're, you know, undervalued and they're going to go up when they become fairly valued. What you're basically doing is you're applying a model there which says if you buy stocks when they're cheap and then sell them when they're expensive, you wind up making money. Exactly. But the the, like, the only thing I would add is that you have to be very precise when you build a model about what you mean by will go up. Like you have to say within a certain time period, you know, by this, you know, you have to actually define all your terms. But yes, that's basically what you're doing. And and obviously, the financial markets are full of battling bots, and we can let them battle each other to a standstill. And it doesn't really harm most of us, unless you're Michael Lewis. Um <laughs> In which case it benefits you greatly because you get a massive book advance. Um, <laughs> but the um, but but there are much more dangerous and um, invidious or insidious um, algorithms out there, which you call weapons of mass destruction. And you have this wonderful three part test. Yeah. Can you tell us what what are the three criteria that it, it, that an algorithm needs in order to be a WMD? Right. Um, so just to be clear, I am not a hater. I'm a lover. Um, most <laughs> algorithms are fine. They're benign. They, I don't care about them. Most people don't care about the algorithms I build. Um, but sometimes um, sometimes they are important and destructive. And so here's my three characteristics. The first is that they're widespread and they have high impact. That means that um, the result of this algorithm is somehow used to make decisions that affect people's lives. Like it might send them to jail. It might not let them have a job or not have a job. It makes important decisions about people, a lot of people. Um, the second is that it's secret. 
in some sense. So that often it's a, often a scoring algorithm, and it's it's secret in this in a sense in the context of a scoring algorithm means that people do not understand uh, the formula they're they're being scored by, and sometimes they don't even understand that they're being scored. It's actually like away from them; they don't even see it. Um, and along with secrecy, you you have this sort of pairing that it's typically unaccountable and you can't appeal. So if you don't know you're being scored, you can't say, hey, that's the wrong score. Um, but even if you do know your score, if you're not told how it works, you can't complain and you can't correct it. The final characteristic is that it's destructive. And that's in two, at two levels. The first is that, you know, like the person, the people that are scored badly suffer, right? They are, they lose opportunities in their life, important opportunities. But the second, which I see as a pattern for the, all these weapons of mass destruction is that they are they're engendering these sort of negative feedback loops that actually undermine the original goals, which are often good goals, good intentions. Um, but like you have these good intentions, you have these bad algorithms that are trying to fix these big problems, and then they're actually making the problems worse. All right. So let's start with a bad algorithm, just a simple uh, 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 an algorithm which is badly designed. Um, it almost doesn't count as an algorithm because, as you said, um, one of the things that you need for an algorithm is is a success metric, and you you have to be able to tell whether it's working or not. Yeah. yeah. And what we're going to talk about is these exist in various different places. They certainly exist in Washington D.C., where your main like anecdote comes from, but they exist in New York and more or less across the country. Teacher rating algorithms, where yeah. what you do is you try and measure how much a class improves over the course of a year, and then you attribute that improvement to the teacher of the class, and then you say that a good teacher will make a, a class of kids improve a lot, and a bad teacher will see no improvement in their kids, and then what you do invariably is you use these ways to sort of punish in some way or even sometimes fire the teachers who perform badly. Yeah. So it's called value-added model. And actually, it's a family of models. Different models are uh, different versions of the model. Sometimes called a growth model. Um, those are the same things. And it relies, as you say, on this kind of expect expectation. And it's like actually a, another model. Um, so for each person in each class, for each teacher, they're given a sort of expected end-of-year standardized test score. Okay, so that let's call that the first model. And then the teacher is basically held responsible for the difference between that expected score and the actual score for their class. And you know, think about think about it like if if you understand statistics at all and I know some listeners do, <laughs> this is called the error term in that first model. It is literally the, the difference between what was actually happened and what was expected to happen is the error term. In other words, you're not looking at the number, you're looking at the difference between two numbers. And if you, whenever you look at the difference between two numbers, you're going to look at something which is naturally yeah. much fuzzier and more stochastic yeah. than the actual main it, big it, number. To, to make, I guess, a, a slightly dumbed-down version of that point, when you've got two numbers and looking at the difference, each of those numbers has sort of some some randomness and variability and uncertainty built into it. And so you look at the, the difference between those two slightly random, slightly uncertain numbers and it just compounds all of that absolutely and so that's what makes it such a, like that kind of second that derivative of it's it it's a derivative actually yeah. it is actually called a derivative yeah um, it's the first derivative yeah <laughs> so it's like um so yeah so and and moreover i'll add that like the first model i mentioned that try to guess what the a kid is going to get as a score knowing what, what they got last year essentially uh it's a bad model already it's already very uncertain as you point out jordan 
And the idea that we're going to sort of hold each teacher accountable for these this sort of average error term for their class is ridiculous. I mean, especially because you typically only have about 20 kids in the class. I mean, it'd be one thing if like you did this over many, many thousands of years and you had a million and a half students and then you probably would get a signal, but you don't, that's not what we have. This is one of the points you made that I I really appreciated, which is that just, you know, we, we like to think that we can bring the statistical certainty to, to measuring something like teacher quality, but statistics inherently as a science deals with big numbers. That's how you even out the variability. And there are just some things where we can't get that kind of scale. And I think of, um, you know, I, there's this like really famous uh, economic study about the value of a good teacher and says that a value-added teacher will add this much to a kid's lifetime earnings. And it's been a while since I've looked into it. But as I was reading your your piece or your book, I was thinking about the difference between that study, which just looked at mounds of data, mounds and mounds of data versus how you're actually rating a real teacher in the classroom based on 125 kid class. And just what a gap that is in terms of, you know, the academic work, looking at a data set and what would actually be done on the ground. And I I think, you know, really, you have to keep that in mind when you think hear people whipping out these studies to try and justify then these rating systems. And it was... Right. Thanks. Well said. And I just want to add that, like, on top of the statistical uncertainty, like what I looked at in Washington, D.C., which happened like around 2010, was Michelle Rhee was chancellor of schools there. And um, she added something which which, you know, she should have seen coming. Right. Everybody should have seen coming. But she added like carrots and sticks to the system. Yeah. So she had all the teachers evaluated this way with these faulty models. And then she also said, you're going to get a bonus if you get a good score and you're going to get fired if you get a bad score. And so I actually interviewed someone who got fired by it. But I mean, just just stop right there and think about what that would look like. If you're going to get a bonus, if you get a good score, guess what's going to happen? Um, you're going to make sure that your kids do well on their standardized tests. So we actually saw a bunch of allegations of cheating. Um, and then, you know, they were never really, really investigated because it was so embarrassing politically. But then some of those kids whose teachers were probably cheating were then sent to this woman Sarah's class. And guess what? Their expected score at the end of Sarah's year um, was higher than what they actually achieved. So she got a very bad score, yeah, right? Be- so her previous cheating actually ruins the next person's... And there's th- one other thing which we have to yeah. talk about here, which is the meta effect of all this, which is that if you are a teacher in a school system which is which has a system, a quantitative system of weeding out so-called bad teachers. And if you are, and if, as we have seen, certainly in New York and even in Washington as well, if the bad scores tend to be distributed more or less randomly, that there's very, very little correlation between teacher quality and having a bad score, then what you're doing is you're feeling that you're living in this kind of incredibly unfair lottery system. And there are lots of school systems in America. There are lots of schools in America. And some of them have teachers who are suffering under this uncertainty. And some of them don't. And if you're a decent teacher who can get a job in more or less any school system, chances are you're going to go to one of the more affluent school systems who don't have this you know, sort of Damocles hang, hanging over the head of every teacher. <laughs> and, the, uh, and so the broad effect is that the good teachers wanting to get out from under this sword all wind up going to the good school systems where they don't need to worry. And moreover, the rich school systems, which yeah. don't use these tests. Yeah. This actually leads to one other um, really 
I think, important point from this section of the book that I, I want to bring up because, again, I found it really enlightening, which is just these teacher value, these value added models. They're not self-correcting. You, you have this kind of comparison where you talk about the way we rate teachers versus how a, a sports team will rate players. And they, you know, a baseball team has its models for like a pitcher, right? And they run the potential prospect through that model. And if they say, oh, we don't want that guy, they can then look. And if that guy they decide not to draft turns into a superstar, they can say, what did we get wrong in our model? What did we get wrong? What exactly. did we get wrong? And we can fix it. They can look and say, okay, well, there are errors. Let's reincorporate that and improve. And you know, you talk about how there isn't that really doesn't exist in the value added model. I might argue that if like test scores don't start going up, maybe theoretically a school district would try to start improving it. But I don't know of how many instances but where there's that's no, actually there's happened. no way you can do the feedback loop yeah. because you have no data. Like when you know, teacher Sarah yeah. goes to another school district and starts performing very well. That there's no way of knowing that getting she that yeah. data and. Building it back into it's, the algorithm. Exactly. It's not individually. There's no individual feedback. There's no ground truth. Yeah. It's only as a system we can say, hey, this isn't working. And I think we might be starting to see that. Like, we're not actually suddenly teaching all our kids really well. And not, not to mention the fact that there doesn't seem to be any correlation whatsoever between you know school systems which have these kind of rankings and school systems which perform well, even on standardized tests. There's no particular reason to believe that test scores, which are obviously not the be-all and end-all of education, but even assuming that they are, right. the test scores respond well to this kind of but system. Just speaking to like your the, the way you think about an algorithm generally, this point about being able to self-correct, that an yeah. algorithm can learn. And if there's no way for it to really learn, then it's a bad algorithm. I thought that was a really mm-hmm. – uh, that's a point I'm going to take away from this. So I don't want to ruin – I don't want to spoil too much of the book. So, <laughs> so, no, but that's – so, okay. So that's the bad algorithm. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. So, Kathy. Yeah. Um, there are bad <laughs> algorithms like teachers, and then there are algorithms which actually do what they're meant to do. Yeah. So talk about one of those. Yeah, I'll talk about one of them. There's quite a few examples in my book that are successful um, from the point of the view of, view of of a certain person, but are actually, in my opinion, bad for society. Nefarious. Well, they, they can make Nefarious. money for a company, but they're bad for right. society. That yeah. Right. So, yeah. They're too I mean, good. Very, very shortly, the scheduling algorithms that keep people um, like on call for Walmart um, is an example of something that's like makes a, probably saves a lot of money. Like the shift workers don't, um, but the, sh- the shift workers like quality of life is uh, degraded. Um, but that's not the example we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about um, recidivism risk models, um, which are models that rate people sort of like score people on their chances of coming back to prison after leaving. So 97% of people who go to prison eventually leave. So this is a very salient question, like who's coming back? Um, so the, the, there's a lot of stuff here, but the, the first thing to understand is that judges, um, judges use these scores in like more than half the states, um, for all sorts of decisions, including parole, bail, and sentencing. But I'm going to focus on sentencing because I think it's the most 
scary one. And the idea is like people who have a high score of coming back to jail will be sentenced to longer. And what is the, I mean, before we go into the harmful effects of the algorithm, whether the algorithm is good or bad, can you just explain the thought process whereby, I mean, I, okay, let me hazard a guess here. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I'm hazarding a guess that basically one of the main purposes of prison is to keep criminals off the street. In, yes. And that if you're in prison, then you're not going to be criming out in public. And if, criming. If you... Um, <laughs> If you are very unlikely to crime again upon release from prison, we might as well release you because there's no point to society in just keeping you locked up indefinitely. Whereas if you are very likely to crime again, then it helps society to keep you in prison where you're not going to do any harm. And for that reason, if you have a higher chance of reoffending, then it makes sense to pass to hand down a higher sentence for exactly the same crime. Right. And I think that is the reasoning. Um, now, I'm not a, not a lawyer, but I know that judges are given a long list, like a rubric for de- deciding sentencing. Mm-hmm. And it's complicated. It's not simple. And it's it's partly protecting the public. It's partly just desserts. It's partly all this stuff, right? But yes, I think the reasoning is more or less like that. I do want to throw in, um, to complicate this, because it really is complicated, that you we really need to start distinguishing types of crime. Um, a lot of a lot of crime is, is stuff that we really wouldn't want to, um, people out criming again, um, you know, murder, rape, you know, assault. And then there's a lot, a lot of crime that um, is stuff like basically mental health problems that get people arrested. And that happens a lot. So if you have like a drug, you know, drug addictions um, and these people will tend to have very high recidivism risk scores, but we don't think of them as like really, really evil people. We think of them as like people who need treatment, right? But the, the, sort of that that comes to the very first point, which is like we are we're not sort of being sensitive to wh- the question of why. And we're, I'm going to jump in here before we return to recidivism risk and talk about one little baby anecdote from the book, which I think is germane here, which is what happens when universities realize that a certain subset of their incoming freshmen are unlikely to finish their freshman year and they're going to drop out and they're basically going to fail. Um, Certain universities, and we're not going to start naming names, um, are going to basically kick those freshmen out sharpish because if they aren't even really counted as part of the freshman class, then that will improve their U.S. News report, US, U.S. News and World Report rankings. Other universities will look at those people and say, ah, you are the ones who need the most help and you'll get extra, like, buddies and, and you know, teaching and basically we're going to do our very best to make sure that you finish. And I feel like... That distinction where you can have like a relatively sort of morally neutral algorithm which can either have a very evil or a very good outcome is something which you can definitely apply to people with mental health issues or drug addictions in the criminal justice system where you, whereby on the one hand you can say, oh, you're going to need like extra help and we can help like fix the underlying issue here. Or you can just say, hey, you know what? We're going to slap an extra five years on your sentence. That's such a good point. Thank you, Felix. Like, I actually don't object to the existence of these models. And um, we're going to talk about, like, all the data that goes into it and how, like, I think it's very racially biased, these scores. Um, 
but the 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 main point is that if it's a, it's what I'd object to is the way they are used to destroy people's lives, right? If they were used uh, as ways of finding an intervention that actually reduced recidivism, like do you need counseling? Do you need mental health facilities? Um, then it wouldn't be a weapon of mass destruction because it wouldn't have the third characteristic, which is destructive. It would actually be proactive and it would like help people who are um, in trouble. Yeah, it's like each one of these, you know, every evil algorithm now that you talk about has a has a possible use for good. Because essentially what you say is that we've gotten excellent at finding troubled people. Like companies that are selling predatory products are looking for troubled people. And if you can find those troubled people, you can either choose to sell them a payday loan, give them a payday loan, or you can try to help them figure out their finances. That's a really good way of saying it. Every, you know, and we've, you know, we've learned how to find society's weakest. And now it's a question of, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Do we think about this like, you know, Uncle Ben? Like, So we're going to come back to this in the solutions bit, but let's just, Mm -hmm. like, Explain what's going on in these recidivism. Yeah, models. right. So, I I just want to say, um, and a lot of listeners already know this, but um, the data going into these algorithms, which um, you know basically is crime data, and there's also questionnaires associated to these recidivism risk algorithms. They're they're all basically proxies for race and class, um, and the reason is that we have a sort of uneven policing system in our country. So we just, people get, especially with low-level nuisance crimes and mental health problems, which I just just discussed, you're just much more likely to get caught for something like that if you are black and poor. Um, So there's just like the data itself going into these algorithms. And remember, algorithms, all they do is train uh, train on historical patterns um, to an objective function, which in this case is going to jail. And if, so in other words, if we think that the way we send people to jail is uneven, unfair, biased, and racist, then these algorithms are just going to uh, further those uh, those biases. And that's what I what what's actually happening. So it and talking about toxic overall feedback loops, like we're we're these these algorithms were introduced to the justice system because we wanted to like improve like make make justice more scientifically uh, scientific and objective and improve like racist practices. Um, because the, we no one is denying that that sentencing in general is racist. Yeah, nobody, right? nobody. There's plenty of evidence for that. So this, the idea was like, let's let's do better than that. And it's a good idea. But the problem is that what we're doing, since we're being sloppy about it, very sloppy, is that we're, um, we are using these algorithms to, these scoring systems to hold people accountable, yet again, for things like they were born poor and black. And so this is, this is a point you, you bring up. And you, you kind of ask the reader to think hard about this one really important policy question, which is, are we willing to sacrifice some efficiency for fairness? Because this sentencing algorithm is probably pretty efficient. Um, being racist can be efficient in some ways. It's actually, but, it's incredibly, if you think about it, it's accurate. Yeah. Because yes, black people are more likely to go back in jail because guess what? They're more likely yeah. to get caught again for the same, you Exactly. Know. And so it's absolutely, so the question is, are we willing to sacrifice some, quote, efficiency for fairness, which is, Theoretically, what are, you know, you point out, that's kind of what, like, the Fourth Amendment, what the whole Constitution is about in a lot of ways. Yes. So this is not something that's, you know, that's foreign to American thinking. It's, you know, we are supposed to sacrifice some efficiency in the system. To yeah, make, and, and this is, yeah, and, and you have a great chapter about all of the efficient but harmful laws with, you know, practices which were outlawed because, you know, the harm outweighs the efficiency. Yeah. I mean, in this case, it's actually constitutional, right? Like, you're supposed to have be equal in front of the law. So, so let me justice issue. So let me ask the the obvious question here, which is, 
Do you have any reason to believe that racist, as though they almost certainly are, that these algorithms do not constitute an improvement on the status quo ante? That, like the, I mean, I think what a lot of people have who implement these algorithms believe and honestly believe is that the sentencing system is so institutionally racist to begin with that even a slightly racist algorithm is going to be an improvement. I would do, like nothing more, Felix, than to be allowed to check. That is one of my life's goals, um, to have the access to the data, to test. And it's possible. Now, we have like jurisdictions that use these risk, recidivism risk scores, and we have jurisdictions that don't. So there's sort of a natural experiment to see whether it's become less racist as they use these scores. So bring it on. The problem is I, th- that data is not accessible to the, me. And this is, and this is a, a theme which runs through the whole book, is the proprietary nature of these algorithms. And time and time again, people look at them and say, why is this secret? And there's no good answer. There's no good answer. Other than it's our secret sauce. <laughs> That's the company. Marketing. Yeah, yeah, the company. This is our secret sauce. Hey, you can't tell them what's, what the spices are. <laughs> this episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. So, Jordan. Yes. Every book. Yeah. Which on I would say at least nine out of ten books that we talk about on this show has, has a solutions chapter. And in a way, Kathy's book is no different. It has this conclusion. It has this conclusion where she where she talks about how data scientists have the ability to inflict just as much harm as doctors do. Yeah. But doctors have a Hippocratic oath and shouldn't data scientists have something similar? What did you make of this conclusion? Well, I mean, okay, so I'll go give Kathy a little more credit. She starts off with the Hippocratic oath and saying that's actually not enough in a way. You know, you're, you can't rely – I mean – you, you can try to inculcate some responsibility in data scientists, but in the end, company, you can't rely on the free market to police itself here um, because in the end, it's it's just, you know, the example you give is that you can rely on the free market to improve on things like social issues, like companies will embrace gay rights because it's profitable. But can you really expect a company to, you know, improve on something like civil, uh, on fairness when it's less profitable, less efficient for them to be fair and to kind of tone down these algorithms? Um, you know, you talk about a few different things and, you know, the one that stuck with me is sort of, um, you know, kind of the most blunt but and hardest to do. But you talk about kind of the European solution towards the end, which is really like it is the 
it's the it's the cleaver. It's basically saying to companies that you can't reuse you can't reuse and resell my data. Mm-hmm. Like right, the regulatory state saying you cannot take people's data and then resell it without their permission. It is just not allowed. You end up cutting off a lot of these data brokers, which create these profiles that can end up preventing you from maybe getting a job or from you know getting a loan at some point in your life, um, and just say no more. Um, and that, you know, that seemed like the most elegant solution. I'm wondering, though, you know, do you think that to me seemed like the most elegant solution? I'm drawn to it. I'm wondering if you think some of the kind of less optimal, less elegant solutions could still work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we didn't actually talk about any of the examples that use like profiles of people. Yeah. And um, there, some of them are really important. You got to like read the book for that. Political <laughs> micro-targeting, you know, like predatory advertising, um, as you said, like people trying to get jobs, but they're they're checked out with their um, sort of online behavior. And I agree that um, the European model, which basically gets rid of data warehousing and profiling for the most part, um, is the big gun. Yeah. I have to say, though, that like um, other, other authors have suggested something along these lines and have been like absolutely panned. I mean, like the political pushback to this, it's really it, you're talking about like getting rid of a large industry. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that's but that's we, should, that we yeah. should say, hey, that's no problem. I'm just saying politically that's really difficult. And I would also add that it doesn't solve the problems for the teachers. That's it, true. It doesn't solve the problems for the criminal defendants. Um, so it's not the only thing that we could do. And I would love to see it happen, um, but I, I just – But you, what you do suggest is that we create basically a whole new regulatory body which is in charge of keeping an eye on these algorithms and these weapons of mass destruction and has and which has some kind of power to stop them if yeah. they if you know if they start right. going and, wrong and i just i just want to go back to the very beginning you know we talked about how i've carved out this definition of what to worry about and i think we just need to start there when we're talking about regulation because we need it will it will never happen that all algorithms have suddenly become transparent right that's not going to happen i don't want that to happen it would be ridiculous what we but what we may be able to say is like when it becomes widespread and high impact um then it can't be secret and potentially destructive then it can't be like entirely secret like there has to be at least a regulatory body that can look into it to make sure it's not discriminating. You know, also the the law nerd in me is, is sort of the, the wheels of my mind are turning. If there isn't some sort of due process argument that could be made in the courts about a lot of this stuff where these algorithms start intersecting with things like sentencing or, you know, an employer like, you know, a, a state, a teacher, you know, being fired, essentially saying that if an algorithm is uh, opaque if it's a black box and you can't know what you're being rated on. You're not getting due process of law. I do wonder. This I, is this is something which I've been wondering about recently. Um, I've noticed this hasn't happened for everyone, but it's happened for a lot of people that when you call an Uber X now, yeah. instead of just being charged by the mile in a minute, it just gives you a flat fare. It says you're going here and it's going to cost you $14.27 and then you go, okay, and then you go there and then you get charged $14.27. And that algorithm for how much it's going to cost you is completely opaque and can easily be um, a function of how I've been profiled according to my uh, 
what's the word elasticity of uh, like they they want to charge me basically as much as I would be willing to pay to do that. Yep. And yeah. someone else taking the same trip might get charged less because they wouldn't be willing to pay as much as me. Yeah. And there's a lot of things going you see on that, that you just don't know. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So when it rises to the level of harm, like pot- real potential harm, then I really feel like we we need regulation. We need someone, maybe not everyone, but someone to be able to check this shit out. Right now we have nothing. Yeah, pricing models need to be it's all, you know, I mean, some of this seems like the kind of thing that Consumer Protection Financial Bureau would be able to do. I tried to talk to them about this. Yeah. The problem is that they, you know, and I'm not singling them out in any sense, yeah. but like regulators are like they're afraid of technology. I feel like if the we CFPB just... The CFPB has yeah. data scientists. It's not they do. like they It's do. not like they're afraid of technology, but the fact is... And they is, want to work on this. They just don't... They're not there yet, is all I'm... All I feel like so, just drop yeah. copies of this book on their doorstep. <laughs> hey, listen, actually, the CFPB, I should say that, like, yeah. they've done the most work in this area. Like, Have they... Been, yeah. Well, they didn't do... They weren't, like, analo- like auditing an algorithm, per se, but they audited sort of... Um, auto loans predatory auto yeah. loans and they and so it's been a kind of political mess but they're really trying to do this stuff they're doing quite a good job at trying to find what's known as disparate impact yes where you have yeah. an algorithm which has a disproportionate impact on black people basically yeah, well but, that's a lot of a, a large part and of that what is I'm a large about. part of the book and and yeah. to be honest you know the book the main worry of the book is that while Rich and affluent people might actually be better off from a lot of these algorithms. It's the 99% and actually more like the bottom 40%, the, the, the poor, the people of color who really get hurt and who are largely voiceless and have no ability to fight back against these um, models which are punishing them. Yeah. yeah, and they and they are the the underclass, sort of digitally speaking, and yeah. and moreover, we we technologists, and this is actually the I'm going back to the sort of origin story of the book. Like the moment I realized I needed to write this book was when I was like hanging out with VCs in my like tech technical startup, and they were like the VC was talking about how great it's going to be someday when all he sees are trips to Aruba. And jet skis in his tailored ads, and he never has to look at another University of Phoenix ad because it's not for people like him. And meanwhile, the predatory universities are going to be sitting there, and you know, Joe down the street is going yeah. to be getting nothing but those so. Another predatory word, yeah, colleges. sort of like the te- the internet technology is set up so that well-off people do not even have to look at these WMDs. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So let's let's have a numbers round here. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do a numbers round. Um, Jordan is going to go first because he's convinced that we all have his number. I'm pretty sure I don't have his number. I know number. what his number is, but I don't have it. I have two numbers, and I'm like, Jordan's going to take the first one. Jordan, what's your number? Uh, my number is uh, 185 million. I knew it. Which is how many dollars <laughs> Wells Fargo is having to pay in various fines, mostly to the CFPB. Um, and uh, Los Angeles, City of Los, Los Angeles, Angeles. I kind of love. Yeah, yeah for... Turns out uh, they were their employees were opening thousands, hundreds of thousands of fake accounts and credit cards and such for customers, basically to fulfill quotas. Uh, they're, they're, they had this 
system where they were basically told you were going to be judged on how many accounts do you open every day um, or how many cards you get people to open. And so what did people do when they had these incentives? Well, they just went, didn't tell anyone, didn't tell the customers they were doing it. They would just open something and use the information, open some account with like no money in it or a dollar in it maybe, and then move that money back into the customer's account often. But just to have opened it, just to add it to their quota. Um, they, and, they would sign people up for credit. They would say, oh, if you want to open up this savings account, you need to open up a credit card at the same time. Get the credit card at home. It has no annual fee. You can just cut it up. This is clearly the opposite of profitable for yeah. Wells Fargo. <laughs> so people got really excited about the fact that some of these checking accounts and some of these credit cards had fees and the people wound up having to pay fees on these accounts which they never asked to open the fact is that the fees were a rounding error like the total number of fees generated by all of the credit cards was like four hundred thousand dollars i'm going to push back here um i want you to look at this as a regime that the management placed on all these customer facing people who make basically ten dollars an hour basically uh, the you have you can't say like the the fraud didn't make the money without talking about the overall like system of incentives like the question is whether putting the quotas into place as a whole was profitable and i think it probably was because not i mean there was fraud clearly but there was also probably a lot of like very pushy salespeople that succeeded in getting people to open accounts maybe and, and, and again this comes back to the the overarching question of algorithms which is like does you know, all, all algorithms get built with a model in mind. Yes. And the model here is that if you cross-sell more products to more people, then you will make more money. And if you do that in a kind of if, – if you just look at a bank which doesn't have these quotas, and you, you will obviously see that the customers which have the most products are the most profitable customers for the bank. But then the minute you start putting in the quotas, you game the system essentially and you wind up – giving a whole bunch of products to people who don't want them and who are not going to be more profitable. Yeah. So I, you know, you so basically what you're saying see. is weapons of mass destruction is a new lens through which you see absolutely everything. Well, well, that, I feel like <laughs> we are the only so ones. I have, a lot of people brought this up. You get more of what you measure. That's like exactly. sort of the, yes. even if it's fake accounts. My anyway. number is $182 million. Okay. Which is, and, and this is, I can't believe we've managed to go this far in this, in this, um, episode without using the word facebook but <laughs> but facebook is of course the the world's biggest algorithm basically it's just it's a hundred billion dollar algorithm and everything you see is filtered through a million algorithms and the most profitable one is the algorithm which shows you um ads but there are many many others um 182 million dollars is the amount of ad revenue that facebook has just in norway which is a very small country. And right now, there is a huge fight in Norway because a Norwegian phot photographer um, put Nick Utt's famous photograph of the girl being napalmed in Vietnam up on his on a, on, on a Facebook post. Facebook took that down. Um, the photographer complained. Um, Facebook wound up suspending him. The biggest newspaper in... Norway came out and said, this is ridiculous, published the photograph on their Facebook page. They got that post taken down. The prime minister of Norway came out and put the photograph on her Facebook page. 
and she had that post taken down, and there was this <laughs> massive fight. And this fight. is like a, a week after Zuckerberg said that he, they're not a media company. Yeah. yeah, and so there's this massive fight where Facebook is going after the biggest publisher in Norway, the prime minister of Norway, and basically telling them what they can and can't publish. Mark Zuckerberg is saying that he's not uh, um, a publisher, and Facebook is making $182 million a year out of Norway, virtually none of which gets sort of filtered back into Norway itself. It just gets dividended back to Silicon Valley. So that is that is the, the fight du jour, which I am now, as you say, Kathy, looking at through the lens of your yellow book. Is there any way that Norway wins this fight? Like, is there any context <laughs> in which... They start their own Facebook? Facebook. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. My number is 16. Um, I've been looking at the Airbnb discrimination um, stuff going on there. They so, they've yeah. recently came out saying they're going to try harder to yeah. avoid discrimination. <laughs> yeah, so so I think it's, um, you know, black-sounding black names um, are 16% more likely to be rejected by Airbnb hosts than white-sounding mm-hmm. names. Um, so there's... Uh, pretty good evidence that there's there's real discrimination on the part of the hosts who don't want black people staying at their house. Um, and they have all sorts of design pl- ideas for making that much, much harder, which I really like. Yeah. It is such a tricky question just because also you're, you're dealing with not just a national company, but you're dealing with an international company that just it, – But, it's, you know, and you, so but many you, can, you, can f- you can fix a lot of things with just yeah. – one design change. And the, the design change that the, I think is most important is like an, basically an automatic acceptance. Like yeah. You don't you don't get to decide. You're like you you're either get to offer your room that night or you don't. I, I'm old enough to remember when Airbnb was this thing where like it was all plugged into the Facebook graph and you would be like, I will only rent to you if you're my friend or a friend of my friend. <laughs> yeah. Those are old days. Um, so, OK, um, that is it for the episode I I will reiterate my request. Oh, my other number, which I have to mention, is 99, because Kathy's book was at one point number 99 on the overall Amazon bestseller list, which amazing. is kind of amazing. Did it really? I didn't know let's, that. Let's get it higher than that. Push it up. Push, push it, it up. up. Buy, buy it in, in your small you local bookstore. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on Amazon or anywhere, on Audible or anywhere else. And... Um, Write to us. The address is slatemoney at slate.com. If you read the book, if you have any feedback for Kathy, she will get it that way. Um, I do need to thank Virilyn Williams, the producer of this show, and the executive producers, Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers, and the whole Panoply network, which you can find at iTunes.com slash Panoply. So we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.